Hello, and welcome back to the HSPAN podcast, your go-to podcast for longevity policy discussion. I'm your host, Dylan Livingston. Today, we will be joined by Chris Barnes, CEO of Lento Bio. In this episode, I wanted to learn about how Chris got involved with the longevity field, the science and strategy behind Lento Bio, and ways Chris sees the state government of New York being helpful in the longevity mission. Without further ado, here's Chris Barnes. Live long and prosper. All right. Welcome back to another HSPAN podcast. Our guest today is Chris Barnes. Chris, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Dylan. Yeah, absolutely. I think I just want to start off with some basics. Can you talk about yourself and how you became the CEO of Lento Bio? What's the journey? How did you become such a leader in the longevity field? And what's the backstory there? For sure. Yeah. So uh, my company, I, I founded two years ago, is called Lento Bio. So we are under the i umbrella. We're an independent company and we're working on treating efforts presbyopia with a larger focus also on aging related structural protein damage under this general aging damage aging hallmarks type of approach to aging diseases longevity my backstory i have been interested in longevity and aging for quite a while i've always been interested in science and i think it was around 2008 when i started college and i read some of the really good books which guide a lot of modern thinking in terms of aging damage like undoing aging and whatnot came out then and just got, I don't know, really interested over the course of undergrad, read a ton of stuff, did my undergrad thesis in a Fusen-related project, then went to grad school, PhD at Weill Cornell in New York City, and did a mix of work. It was in it was a neuroscience PhD, some work on, on lipofusin also then, though that wasn't my thesis project then. That is how I met Kelsey, who is CEO of ICOR and thus a business partner of mine in that sense. And... Uh, a sense after that, I I really wanted to found a startup one day. I had some ideas, so I ended up figuring I'd bridge that kind of gap where to get the extra clinical knowledge and business knowledge by going to consulting. So I consulted for a few years with Life Science Dynamics, and over the course of that, I had a few focuses, most of which were somewhat aging related, at least, including all different types of aging related ophthalmology diseases. And that's where I saw this opportunity in presbyopia, by which I chose to found Lentobio. Gotcha. Okay. You, you answered my next question already. So can you talk about why presbyopia is the indication? And then also, can you talk about the mechanics of the drug you're creating? I know it's an eye drop, which I think is fascinating in terms of accessibility and application, right? I think that's one of the biggest hurdles for this field. Can you talk about your strategy developing Lento for this focus? Yeah, absolutely. So presbyopia is age-related loss of near vision. It's in a sense, the earliest onset and most ubiquitous aging disease in that everyone will get it between age 40 and 45 or so. Basically, what happens is the lens of your eye stiffens. The lens, it basically focuses light on your retina. And if it's unable to flex, then you're unable to accommodate and focus nearby light sources correctly. It's like I said, everyone will get it. And that's why you need reading glasses. That's the standard of care now. But there's been an interest in kind of in eye drops. 70% of patients said they would prefer to try eye drops. Uh, and the majority, unfortunately, are not targeting the underlying aging damage. And this is something I saw when I was in life science dynamics. They're called meiotics, and they are basically constricting the pupil and inducing what's called the pinhole effect. And basically, all you need to know is 
they're short acting. You know, it, it, once the drug goes away, the effect goes away. Nothing happens to the lens. And additionally, they have a lot of different side effects. They induce headaches. They induce often loss of night vision because of the constriction of the pupil. So since I believe strongly in let's remove the underlying aging damage to rejuvenate the tissue, and that's going to be a longer lasting and better solution, I wanted to actually target things which were causing the stiffness of the lens. So we got to the point we are where we are, which is basically, we now have an eye drop, which in mice significantly reduces the stiffness of the lens. I can't really expand beyond that at this point, though I think I'm excited to hopefully later this year, share some of the specifics of the data. But we got to this point by basically saying, okay, here are the different moieties of damage in the lens, the structural protein damage. The lens, by the way, is a really interesting structure. It lacks nuclei, it lacks organelles, it has barely any metabolism. It's almost entirely just protein, mostly crystalline protein that never turns over. So you basically have one aging hallmark, which is driving all of this stiffness, which is long uh, structural protein damage, long lived protein damage. And there's been a lot of work on what types of damage that are, what types of damage that is. We started with drugs, which are known. They have some literature against that damage. And we got a really good medicinal chemistry team. Once we got a hit, we built it up and got a much more powerful drug, which is able to significantly rejuvenate the lens. That's fascinating. Yeah. Basically from my untrained ear, it sounds like this is the only hallmark you can target if you want to cure age-related sight loss. You can't focus on anything with DNA damage because there's no DNA to prepare really, at least the lens, right? Is Am I getting that correct? Yeah. There are many causes of age-related sight loss, of course. And uh, the ones that are totally blinding are usually impacting the retina like glaucoma and, and macular degeneration and whatnot. But in terms of anything involving the lens, yeah, it's entirely structural protein, basically. A small contribution from the muscles which are flexing the lens, but it's mostly just the stiffness of the lens and the cross-linking of the protein. Fascinating. So what's the kind of clinical strategy here? You said you've been, you have some pretty exciting data with mice when do you plan on launching studies in humans? What's the kind of strategy? Or because you're pursuing eye drops versus some other application or delivery mechanism, is there a different strategy you might take or is it the same as any other drug development? Can you talk about all of that? Absolutely. Yeah, I, I firmly believe in the traditional drug development pathway in a sense of how to really show that your drug works and is safe and then eventually get it to millions or in our case, billions of people. This is basically what we want to do is wrapped largely around that. And it's pretty much the same with eye drops though they have a few benefits. So we're going to go through IND enabling studies, which are basically the studies to show that the FDA requires for an IND, a new, basically a, a license to put a drug in humans in clinical trials. So we're starting those now. And then we're starting manufacturing associated with that. And then hopefully in two, three years, just running off of normal estimates for the length of these types of things, we'll be conducting a clinical trial. Of course, there's always a lot of variables at the stage, but I think, yeah, we're on that path towards an IND. We have a strategy forming relating to that. And the nice thing about eye drops and things that treat eyes in general is they, first of all, 
you have a lot less safety concerns. So at this stage, a lot of drugs that might not pass through INE enabling studies might, they might fail due to toxicity, unexpected toxicity. With eye drops, you don't have to worry as much about systemic toxicity because you don't get much exposure systemically. You don't, it, it, ideally, you should not get very much drug at all into the liver or the kidney, et cetera. You have to worry primarily just about ocular toxicity. Right. And additionally, a less well-known benefit is that you also have to do a lot less, you have to manufacture, manufacture a lot less of the actual compound, which is a not, like it's, it's an important aspect, especially at this stage for startups. And you need, I don't know, one hundredth of the total amount of molecule that you give orally if you're just giving as an eye drop. So That's these are pretty things. Yeah, yeah. From a business standpoint, that's a, that's enticing, right? You can probably, you can run a hundred times more experiments than the other companies that are doing yeah, other therapeutics. Yeah. So that's fascinating. And while you were talking, I just had a, a thought. You mentioned that between, what was it? 40 and 60, 45 and 65, you know, that's when presbyopia starts. It's uh, even more specific, actually, between 40 and 45. 40 and 45. Okay. For the vast so, majority of people. So would this, could this be a preventative? So could a 25 year old or a 30 year old theoretically take these eye drops and prevent it, it, this from happening at all? Or is this something that was treating the, the disease at the onset of the disease? Conceptually, I think it could. There, of course, the biggest variable with that will be a, a whether people want to take a preventative eye drop, because I think a smaller percentage of people are going to worry when they're not actually experiencing symptoms. But I think scientifically, there's reasons to believe you you could do that. Another cool aspect, though, is, and we have no data for this, but this is just a th like a theoretical thing I think about. A lot of the damage moieties between presbyopia and cataracts are shared. Those are presbyopia is basically the early disease, early aging disease of the lens, and cataracts is basically the old terminal aging disease of the lens, right? Once you get cataracts, your lens is done, you basically have to take it out and put it in an intraocular lens. Mm. So we think that if you take it, if you take the right type of protein repairing drug for presbyopia, it could potentially be preventative to cataract formation, at least push it off. So this, that's something we're interested in looking into at least for sure. It's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, yeah. You, you, it sounds like you're going to have a monopoly on eyes on all eye related diseases there. I think actually the interesting thing is a lot of the most clinically advanced longevity companies have a lead in indication in ophthalmology. And this is, this has made me think a lot about the advantages of starting with an ophthalmology disease. Uh, Kelsey and Icora share a lot of this kind of philosophy too. Unity Biotech, for example, they started with their osteoarthritis trial. And after, unfortunately, their, their first drug didn't work out in that, they had to pivot and they ended up going with testing in diabetic macular edema and macular degeneration. I think now they're in a phase 2B for diabetic macular edema, which is in with some pretty solid results from what I've seen. And that, that, that is the most advanced analytic, for example. So that I think these types of things do make me think about how, when you can give a safe and very high concentration, local source of something, then you have potential to give a lot of benefits. <laughs> Let me ask you this. So is there a, any plan to pivot from the eye to another organ with lentil? 
Or is, is Lento's focus going to be VI until it's the job is done? And then you, Chris Barnes, might focus on something else. Or is there a plan to grow Lento into this kind of... And there is a plan. We, we're definitely looking into systemic indication following some of the same strategies we've pursued Presbyopia so far. So what one of the really nice things is we have really good ecosystem, really good team. First of all, ICOR is is ICOR Life Sciences is a CRO incubator and also they have some internal longevity related development run by Kelsey Moody and Aaron Wolf in uh, in Syracuse. And that we're working basically out of their facilities and, and they are a really great incubator to work with, both because they're just ex very experienced in the longevity space and Kelsey and Aaron are just quite good to work with in general, but also you have all the access to really good in vivo study right there. Like I'm interacting directly with the people who are running uh, our studies, even though technically it's through a CRO. So that, that that is actually really nice. And they have good aging related models. They're very focused on preclinical efficacy related things. We can leverage that expertise to in different indications. We're looking at that. Also, we have a collaboration with Florida State University professor, Dr. James Frederick, and he's a medicinal chemist who's focused on taking natural compounds and making them bespoke, decking them out, using rational optimization to create something better. He's really world-class at that, and we have support from his lab. And those two things are going to come together because what I would want to do is generally start with, especially in glycation, which is a really important aspect of aging-related crosslinks, you know, work on taking some existing kind of glycation-related drugs and building off of that, creating something really powerful and testing it in different types of aging-related diseases. The first thing that comes to mind with glycation, because it's sugar-related damage, is diabetic complications and whatnot. But generally, we're thinking along that lines, and we're, we don't want to wait indefinitely to do it either. So we're already setting up the kind of initial steps to be able to do that. Awesome. Awesome. That that definitely, there's definitely a larger plan. And so let me ask you this, what is the situation with fundraising? I know every company out there, it, it's a tough time. What, where are you with that? Are you, I think you've gone through your seed round. Are you planning a series A at any point or another seed round? What's the plan with kind of that track? So yeah, we did a pre-seed round in 2022 when we started and raised 680,000 in that. And now we raised kind of an intermediate ongoing bridging round in the meantime, just from individual angel investors. But now we are raising, after our recent pretty strong data with our lead candidate, we're raising a proper larger seed round. So interested angel investors, any angel investors who are interested, definitely I'm happy to talk to them. And we're also hoping to talk with potential funds and maybe pharma partners. Yeah, this it basically right now, it's it's hard for me to compare <laughs> to say, oh, it's this hard or it's this easy. I have to admit it, it's hard because I have not, this is my first time fundraising for a company, but at the same time, it feels like it's going up a little bit in the last half a year, at least. It's hard to describe as a feeling, but I guess in terms of the demeanor of different investors who you talk to, you get a sense of like the optimism versus pessimism in their eyes. I, I think it's going to be good. Right now, we basically just need to do enough fundraising to get to that phase one point, which is, I think, going to be very doable. 
Yeah, I sometimes tongue in cheek say that my job, I feel like I'm a professional <laughs> beggar because all you're doing is fundraising when you're like a startup, right? Yeah. <laughs> it, it is true. I, yeah, I think it's, I think everybody's sick of it being crappy out there. And so I think everybody's just internally like, all right, now it's going to, I think their investors and people in general are like, okay, time. It's like a self-fulfilling pro prophecy almost like they, they are thinking it's going to be good because it can't be bad for too much longer. And so it's going to be good or better now. That's just my two cents, but yeah, I'm hopeful for 2024 and 2025. Yeah, I think I, I honestly just you end up meeting a lot of cool people when you're fundraising also just a lot of different people I get to talk to I'm happy to, you know, I feel like Lento is a very kind of de-risked approach to treating longevity and thus a pretty good business investment in my personal opinion but so I but generally I feel like anyone I talk to whether or not they personally agree with that they end up having good interesting opinions so it's overall it's not been a bad process at all in that sense no yeah i'm glad you're enjoying it it's you, you got to try to enjoy it the whole fundraising process right because <laughs> it has its ups and it has its downs and you just got to stay level the whole time very cool very cool so i want to switch topics a little bit and talk about policy politics and specifically upstate new york disclaimer i my, my family hails from upstate new york the schenectady albany region and okay, I'm nice. a lifelong Buffalo Bills and Syracuse Orange fan. And the roots nice. are deep there. So I have a special place in my heart for upstate New York. And I would love to see upstate New York become a hub for longevity research and development. You guys, Kelsey, you and Aaron, and what, what you guys are building out in Syracuse, and also Governor Hochul's uh, announcement this past year about the cell and gene therapy uh, Institute in Buffalo. There, there seems to be a bunch of activity going on in upstate New York. What have you seen? Or, or do you think New York, especially the upstate region, is set to grow more than other parts of the region in terms of biotech development? What's the sense that you have as someone with boots on the ground? So I have to admit, I haven't been directly affected by the policy decisions yet. So from that perspective, I don't know how in detail I can speak about them, but they are certainly exciting. So the cell and gene therapy in Buffalo, for example, that, that was a really exciting announcement. It doesn't affect Lento because we're working on small molecules, but at the same time, cell and gene therapies are really going to drive a lot of the future of medicine. And it's really cool to have it happening in, in upstate New York. I think in Syracuse, it, it's really nice that i is there. And I think also... They are trying to, because they're, they're very knowledgeable, like I said, in, in longevity and an incubator, they're trying to establish somewhat of a biotech opportunity cluster in, in Syracuse. And that's what draw, drew me there. I'm from Syracuse though, so I, that was also nice, but the, yet nonetheless, actually serendipitous in that sense. I didn't start it in Syracuse because I'm from there. I'm, I started it because i -Core. Uh, is there and I got that opportunity and there's a few other um, longevity companies I think which are based out of Syracuse so there is not local policy decisions that I know of that are directly affecting it but again I haven't I'm not 100% in the loop and that type of thing I, I do know that there are some New York state wide um things which have a lot of potential to help biotech. So like New York State Ventures is a state-run VC fund, which focuses on life sciences. So that that's a really exciting entity, I think. And uh, there's also 
uh, upstate New York has a lot of smaller areas, some of which fit the, what's it called? Like underdeveloped business area, the mm -hmm. hub zone, that's what it's called. It's historically underdeveloped business zone. So you can also get funding for different types of businesses relating to that. So these types of funds and government funding, I think uh, th there certainly are some opportunities in upstate New York. And there's also the advantage, lastly, that it, though this isn't directly compelled by the government, upstate New York is a relatively cheap place. <laughs> and this is why a lot of CROs, for example, in there's also several in Rochester and just around upstate New York, not necessarily longevity focused, but just in general, you can get space for a lot cheaper. Like, of course, materials and a lot of the scientific stuff you buy is going to be the same price wherever you go. But that's a little bit of a help too, I think, especially for people at the very early stage. I always, I've always thought that too, if you're running a, a bootstrapped startup, it doesn't make sense to go to San Francisco. It's the most expensive yep. place for <laughs> I started in San Francisco before I came to Syracuse Sarlento. I was there for two years while I was consulting. And like, it might seem crazy. Oh, you went from San Francisco to Syracuse to start a startup. Right. But yeah, people I know in San Francisco who are have startups there, the, a lot of the expenses are just way bigger. Right. Everything, especially real estate is super expensive. Also then, you, I mean, from a business standpoint, employee salaries, just to make sure that they have a a salary that they can live on in the city there. It's a lot different than what it would be in, in upstate New York to live. Yeah. Around. Yeah. That's, that's a big aspect too. Yeah. Yeah. And then also another thing is in terms of San Francisco versus Syracuse, a lot of people might think, oh, you're exposed to a lot more investors when you're in these large areas, because no matter what, even I really believe in state funding for early stage f firms. I think that it's going to help a lot, but at this point it's still, the bulk of your funding comes from private investors, angel investors, et cetera. Uh, but you, it's not, I haven't met one person who is, you know, from San Francisco or where whatever big city and says, oh, you're from Syracuse. We don't, I'm not going to invest in you because right. of that. You have to make business trips, but that's not the worst thing in the world. It's in, it's, you still have exposure to people wherever you are and you can right. still reap those types of advantages relating to cost, et cetera, that you get in the smaller areas. So Zoom, Zoom is, it's not as, it's not as good as in person, but it's 75% as good. And yeah, just travel. Yeah. That's what I do with it, being in DC. It's, it is true though, that San, everybody is in San Francisco and at least this field, I feel like I'm flying out there far too often. Um, yeah. But, but anyways, yeah. So I, I, I find that fascinating. If I were an investor, I would find that enticing too. So I think it's definitely an interesting selling point for Lento and companies not doing or not headquartered in these like major financial hubs that are really expensive to live in and do business in. So it's very interesting. Yeah. So we talked a little bit about policy and how you've, you haven't really seen any policy that would directly affect Lento. Obviously, A4LI is focused on lobbying governments to support the longevity biotech industry to develop, commercialize their therapeutics, right? And with kind of the federal, the prospects of federal action in this next year are not great just because there are budget fights and we had a speaker thrown out a couple months ago and there's an election coming up and it's going to be a hot, hotly contested election. Where we at A4LI are looking at state governments to interact with and engage with. And right now we're 
focusing on California as a state and working with a state senator over there to introduce a bill that would put a couple hundred million dollars a year into the longevity space, mm. the state government funds. Amazing. It's a moonshot, right? But you gotta, eventually one of these moonshots will hit and all you need is one to really make the world change. Yeah. yeah. But if we have success in California, it makes doing something similar in New York very feasible. New York, I think, is the third or fourth largest state budget, second, third or fourth largest state budget behind California. And that's important when you're thinking about these kind of things. One, how do you suspect that would go over in the New York state government, an initiative like that, putting $100 million or something like that into longevity research per year? And two, have you had any interactions with politicians yourself or local representatives or officials in any capacity? And have they shown support for what you're doing and what this industry is doing? So let me first clarify. I don't think there's been anything at the New York state level yet, which affects Lento. But there still are, like I mentioned, there are things which broadly affect biotech, which are in place. And I think they're very positive. I think that, yeah, more longevity specific funding could be very useful at a national level, like the SBIR, the opportunity to get SBIRs, for example, and though I haven't explored it directly, ARPA-H, these types of things are definitely very important. And the more funding that goes there, the more people, early stage companies can take advantage of these types of opportunities. And I think that if it's applied in New York at a state level, that that's all the better. That 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 would be really great. And I think that there is interest in these types of things broadly in New York state, because like we, we talked about a few things, which are, if someone's making a cell and gene therapy initiative, I think they have a broad interest in healthcare spending initiatives. And the, New York has done a lot of, I think, different state level spending initiatives to build, help build local business. So from all that perspective, I think that it is definitely a place where I could see something like that succeeding in theory and it would be pretty game-changing one really cool thing i think in general in the modern day and maybe this is really in the last five or ten years is that because of the existence of really strong preclinical cro you can start a company for a lot less than you used to be able to mm-hmm. you don't have to buy that five hundred thousand dollar mass spec you don't have to build an entire vivarium yourself mm-hmm. so it, it makes it so that you can get five hundred thousand dollar million dollar grants which bring you a lot further than they used to and thus that magnifies the impact of something like a state funding for a really early stage company, the impact that has. SBARs, for example, national SBARs, the phase ones, I think are around 300,000 right now. 10 years ago, I don't know how far that would have brought a lot of really early stage biotech companies, but now they offer those when you're practically pre-data based on literally what it says on the website. If you can get $300,000 at that point now, that can be really what is the difference for a lot of people between being able to get that data, which gets them to their seed round and not. So I think these things make a huge impact. Yeah, absolutely. And like you said, I told you, I have a soft spot in my heart for upstate New York. And I have also seen all of the business development plans and especially the incubators. I think Roosevelt Island in New York, I think they're turning into a biotech incubator. Like, the, you know, you, you can see that. This, oh, really? Yeah, Associated yeah. with Cornell's tech campus? Campus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Nice. I didn't know about that actually. Oh, yeah, yeah. I lived across the river from them for so long. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think that was uh, last time I checked in on it was I think 2022 or three. But yeah, I, I, Governor Hochul doing these things. At least I have. Maybe it's just because I'm from New York, or maybe it's because she's doing more so than other more of these things than other governors. But either way, I think you and I and probably Kelsey are going to have to probably sit down and figure out a way to make this pitch to Governor Hochul at some point in the near future, because New York, California, New York, the way that the, those two states go is generally how uh, the rest of the country goes, right? So if we want the uh, FDA and the NIH to change their focus, a good way to poke at them to do that is by getting these states, these big states to to buy in. We will definitely be talking more about how we can leverage uh, Lento's success into more governmental and political success for this field too, because something I always say is every political figure I've talked to is supportive of this space in theory. No one's ever said, this is bad. This is something that we shouldn't be doing, but no one is going to put their all into it right now, just because it doesn't exist yet. The field really needs something that hits the shelves and hits the markets and is accessible to all. And I think that's going to be the real game changer, the chat GPT moment. Once that hit AI. Yeah. Topic. I uh, think just to point one thing, I, that's one of the goals Lento has. I think uh, presbyopia, it's not a killer disease, but it's a disease of aging. And it's a disease, which I think for the reasons I've mentioned previously is very tractable. And it also happens to everyone. And earlier to 40-year-olds, 45-year-olds, these are people in the peak of their career who are making a lot of decisions. So I agree that if we can put a an eyedrop on the shelf and point to the fact that it's done with this type of aging damage longevity focused approach, I think that could be an example of a differentiator, which could open the doors for additional things from something to that point too, there are these like core longevity believers, you and me and the people that we've discussed on this, in this conversation. One of the things I worry about is if a therapy gets bought out by big pharma, and then it's not billed as a longevity therapeutic, we miss a PR opportunity there. So I am definitely rooting for these biotechs that are sprouting up now to stay independent and stay and grow and become the Pfizer's and Johnson and Johnson's of the future. So we can stay on message and continue to push this longevity. Yeah, definitely. Definitely agree though. Targeting something that everybody's going to get is a great way to get everyone to buy in, right? If it affects everyone. Yeah. Let me ask you, let me ask you this. And this is usually the wrap up question I ask all of my guests, but what gets you out of bed? What, what gets you excited for the future? What gives you hope? I'm sure you read the news. I'm sure you watch TV. It's, it can be pretty depressing out there, especially these last few years. What gives you hope for this year, next year, and the future? I think there's a lot of room for optimism in healthcare in general. I was competitive intelligence consultant for, like I mentioned, a few years, and I got to see all the stuff that's happening. Literally what you do in competitive intelligence, a lot of what you do is look at the landscape of all the drugs in development, when they're going to be approved, and what kind of difference they're going to make. And... and constantly was reminded that there are really good things happening in the world. And there's a lot of reasons to be excited. And I think specifically in longevity, there's two reasons why the questions we're trying to tackle are the most important, in my opinion, basically the most important questions for humanity right now. One is that 
aging is the largest cause of suffering. And I don't think I need to tell many people who are probably listening to this podcast this, but it's really, you spend the last few decades of your life continuously with more problems. And it's not even just dying eventually. It's also all the different kind of difficulties you face on the way. Everyone's had a grandparent or who you've seen that kind of slow decline and it really sucks. And so both by volume and by the degree of the problem, I think that aging and aging diseases is just very important. Another aspect which doesn't go as talked about though, is the importance of it at a societal level in terms of targeting and improving demographic aging and also saving healthcare systems money. So I, I actually have a blog where I write about it. I've written about a few of this stuff. This is Chris Barnes at sub, substack.com. But I think that people often look at extending lifespan, extending healthy lifespan as somehow like counterintuitive to targeting demographic aging and improving healthcare systems. I think it's very much the opposite. If you have people who are living longer and healthy, you have a lower dependency ratio. You have, and additionally, 90% of spending right now is related in is related to chronic diseases, 90% of healthcare spending, the vast majority of which are age-related. And the reason there's so much is because A, people are, you're sick for 20 years, basically, and you're, you have to take 10 different medicines, which don't physiologically improve you. They offset issues that you have. You're constantly like near, near the end, people are going into the hospital once every few months. So these are the type of things where if you're able to really make a difference in aging, especially with damage targeting therapies that only need to be taken once or a few times, you could drastically reduce healthcare spending requirements by targeting the largest sources. You could improve again, you could improve the dependency ratio essentially by helping people work, be able to work better. And also just generally, if you have an extended lifespan, assuming it's only ever the last 10 or 20 years of people's lifespan that they're really dependent. I don't know. I, I guess it could be longer than that, but assuming there's a fixed period near the end, the longer you live, the longer, the smaller that is as a ratio versus your total productive life. Yeah. Yep. Yep. People, it's funny because the reality is the highest dependency ratios right now are in countries with very short lifespans and very high reproductive rates. <laughs> Ironically, we when you ask someone what country has the highest dependency ratio, they're going to guess like Japan or something like that because everyone hears about demographic aging mm. there. But in reality, it's a lot of countries in sub-Saharan Africa and right now and whatnot. Oh. And it's it's it points to I talk about this on my website a little bit in one of my articles, like the math behind this, because it's counterintuitive to some people. But I really think that, yeah, we're not going to it's more useful to say, let's make people live longer and healthier and thus fight the problem of demographic aging, which is that people are not able to be productive because they're not living long and healthy. That makes more sense than focusing entirely on in raising reproductive rates, which is what a lot of people who are thinking about this are doing. Yep. Elon Musk on that one. Yeah. I, it's weird how kind of ingrained into a lot of people's mind that line of thinking is, but yeah. both is both are admirable pursuits, right? I do. There's a lot of buzz in the longevity field around reproductive longevity, which I think is the key to solve the reproductive, uh, re reproduction crisis. And I think the big issue is women want 
careers now. And that wasn't something that happened in the, the years of our survival, like when we were back in the hunter gatherer. Now we're in modern society. And yeah, that's absolutely true. Also, I, I had a PhD. So a lot of my friends who are like, who are females, if you think of the fact that you're hitting the end of your postdoc, like in your mid, you can be hitting there at your mid to late thirties. So that, I think that is definitely a very important thing too. It actually boggles my mind, like how people don't commit more resources to reproductive aging, given how much resources are committed towards direct reproductive assistance. But yeah, I think that's also super important. Yeah. Yeah. That, I'm totally with you on, and just to note also the, the economic argument is powerful and I'm definitely going to read your Substack because I did not know that sub-Saharan Africa had the highest dependency rate. Uh, now I do, I, I got to uh, read along and take some of your tidbits and throw them into these conversations I'm having with politicos for sure. So everybody subscribe to Chris's Substack. Last one, one last thing on this is part of what the way I think about Lento bio is drug compared to some of these other drugs. It's right now, contact lenses, for example, are they're a formidable expense. People, they're not the price per year of a recently patented drug, but they're three, four hundred dollars per year for everyone who needs to take them. Uh, Myotic eye drops are going to be the same. Woody, which is the first one that was approved, it's something like just a little over $700 a year or something like that, which in, again, in terms of patented drugs, doesn't seem very expensive. But again, everyone gets presbyopia. If you look at the healthcare system as a whole, if we can make a drug which reverses lens physiology, it could be in theory, a thing which is actually, you take it for a set period of time, and then you don't have to take anything for until damage reaccumulates, basically. That's more appealing than sticking plastic in your eye every day too. So even if it is a little more expensive, I think yeah. we're going to take that option. So I think it's going to be both nicer for people who want as convenient life as possible. And then it's also going to be in the long run cheaper yep. and more accessible. It's it, the accessibility of a drug that you need to take every day of your life. It's a lot harder to get it to people in lower income countries where supply chains aren't as as well established. But if it's there's something which you need to take only very periodically, then that that question also becomes easier. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, fascinating. I I will definitely be watching with great enthusiasm uh, Lento's journey, and I'm sure we will be working together closely in the future. You will be at our congressional briefing in March, right? Yeah, I'm stoked for it. Wonderful. Great. So I will see you there. That will be a great event. Anybody listening, please check out our website. I didn't mean for this to be a kind of shout out for the event, but I'm excited to have you specifically, Chris, at the briefing because you're one of the up and coming rising stars in this longevity field that I feel needs a spotlight shined on as much as possible. You're the kind of person I want to be interacting with staffers and members of Congress, and I'm glad you'll be there because uh, this is a powerful story. Uh, it's a story that needs to be told, and it's a story that I believe can get policymakers excited. Chris, with that, is there anything else you want to add before we sign off for the day? No, I think that's all. Yeah, it's, it's, thanks for having me. Yeah. yeah, great to talk about all of this. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. All right, Chris, thank you very much. We will talk soon. Sounds good. Bye, Dylan. Live long and prosper. 
Thank you, Chris, for making time to join us today. For those of you listening at home, I hope you found this conversation as enlightening and informative as I did. If you have anyone you would like to see make an appearance on our podcast, you can send your suggestions to us at info at a4li.org. HSPAN will return in a few weeks, but until then, let's live long and prosper.